Day 4 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae Man's life comes from God It is his gift, his image and imprint A sharing in his breath of life God, therefore, is the sole lord of this life Man cannot do with it as he wills God himself makes this clear to Noah after the flood. For your own life blood too, I will demand an accounting. And from man, in regard to his fellow man, I will demand an accounting for human life. The biblical text is concerned to emphasize how the sacredness of life has its foundation in God and in his creative activity. For God made man in his own image. Human life and death are thus in the hands of God, in his power. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, explains Job. The Lord brings to death and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He alone can say, It is I who bring both death and life. But God does not exercise this power in an arbitrary and threatening way, but rather as part of his care and loving concern for his creatures. If it is true that human life is in the hands of God, it is no less true that these are loving hands, like those of a mother who accepts, nurtures and takes care of her child. I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a child quieted at its mother's breast. Like a child that is quieted is my soul. Thus Israel does not see in the history of peoples and in the destiny of individuals the outcome of mere chance or of blind fate, but rather the results of a loving plan by which God brings together all the possibilities of life and opposes the powers of death arising from sin. God did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the living. For he created all things that they might exist. The sacredness of life gives rise to its inviolability, written from the beginning in man's heart, in his conscience. The question, what have you done? Which God addresses to Cain after he has killed his brother Abel interprets the experience of every person. In the depths of his conscience, man is always reminded of the inviolability of life, his own life and that of others, as something which does not belong to him, because it is the property and gift of God, the Creator and Father. The commandment regarding the inviolability of human life reverberates at the heart of the ten words in the covenant of Sinai. In the first place, that commandment prohibits murder. You shall not kill. Do not slay the innocent and righteous. But, as is brought out in Israel's later legislation, it also prohibits all personal injury inflicted on another. Of course, we must recognize that in the Old Testament, this sense of the value of life though already quite marked, 
does not yet reach the refinement found in the Sermon on the Mount. This is apparent in some aspects of the current penal legislation, which provided for severe forms of corporal punishment and even the death penalty. But the overall message, which the New Testament will bring to perfection, is a forceful appeal for respect for the inviolability of physical life and the integrity of the person. It culminates in the positive commandment which obliges us to be responsible for our neighbour as for ourselves. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. The commandment, you shall not kill, included and more fully expressed in the positive command of love for one's neighbour, is reaffirmed in all its force by the Lord Jesus. To the rich young man who asks, Teacher, what good deed must I do? to have eternal life. Jesus replies, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he quotes as the first of these, You shall not kill. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands from his disciples a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, also with regard to respect for life. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. By his words and actions, Jesus further unveils the positive requirements of the commandment regarding the inviolability of life. These requirements were already present in the Old Testament, where legislation dealt with protecting and defending life when it was weak and threatened in the case of foreigners, widows, orphans, the sick and the poor in general, including children in the womb. With Jesus, these positive requirements assume new force and urgency and are revealed in all their breadth and depth. They range from caring for the life of one's brother, whether a blood brother, someone belonging to the same people, or a foreigner living in the land of Israel, to showing concern for the stranger even to the point of loving one's enemy. A stranger is no longer a stranger for the person who must become a neighbour to someone in need, to the point of accepting responsibility for his life, as the parable of the Good Samaritan shows so clearly. Even an enemy ceases to be an enemy for the person who is obliged to love him, to do good to him, and to respond to his immediate needs promptly and with no expectation of repayment. The height of this love is to pray for one's enemy. By so doing, we achieve harmony with the providential love of God. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Thus, the deepest element of God's commandment to protect human life is the requirement to show reverence and love for every person and the life of every person. This is the teaching which the Apostle Paul, echoing the words of Jesus, addresses to the Christians in Rome. The commandments, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour.
Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. To defend and promote life, to show reverence and love for it, is a task which God entrusts to every man, calling him as his living image to share in his own lordship over the world. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and upon every living thing that moves upon the earth. The biblical text clearly shows the breadth and depth of the lordship which God bestows on man. It is a matter, first of all, of dominion over the earth and over every living creature, as the Book of Wisdom makes clear. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, by your wisdom you have formed man, to have dominion over the creatures you have made, and rule the world in holiness and righteousness. The psalmist, too, extols the dominion given to man as a sign of glory and honour from his Creator. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As one called to till and look after the garden of the world, Man has a specific responsibility towards the environment in which he lives, towards the creation which God has put at the service of his personal dignity, of his life, not only for the present, but also for future generations. It is the ecological question, ranging from the preservation of the natural habitats of the different species of animals and of other forms of life, to human ecology, properly speaking which finds in the Bible clear and strong ethical direction, leading to a solution which respects the great good of life, of every life. In fact, the dominion granted to man by the Creator is not an absolute power, nor can one speak of a freedom to use and misuse, or to dispose of things as one pleases. The limitation imposed from the beginning by the Creator Himself, and expressed symbolically by the prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree, shows clearly enough that, when it comes to the natural world, we are subject not only to biological laws, but also to moral ones, which cannot be violated with impunity. A certain sharing by man in God's lordship is also evident in the specific responsibility which he has given for human life as such. It is a responsibility which reaches its highest point in the giving of life through procreation by man and woman in marriage. As the Second Vatican Council teaches, God himself who said, It is not good for man to be alone, and who made man from the beginning male and female, wished to share with man a certain special participation in his own creative work. Thus he blessed male and female, saying, Increase and multiply. By speaking of a certain special participation of man and woman in the creative work of God, the Council wishes to point out that having a child is an event which is deeply human and full of religious meaning, insofar as it involves both the spouses, who form one flesh, and God who makes himself present. As I wrote in my letter to families, 
When a new person is born of the conjugal union of the two, he brings with him into the world a particular image and likeness of God himself. The genealogy of the person is inscribed in the very biology of generation. In affirming that the spouses, as parents, cooperate with God the Creator in conceiving and giving birth to a new human being, we are not speaking merely with reference to the laws of biology. Instead, we wish to emphasize that God himself is present in human fatherhood and motherhood quite differently than he is present in all other instances of begetting on earth. Indeed, God alone is the source of that image and likeness, which is proper to the human being, as it was received at creation. Begetting is the continuation of creation. This is what the Bible teaches in direct and eloquent language when it reports the joyful cry of the first woman, the mother of all the living. Aware that God has intervened, Eve exclaims, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. In procreation, therefore, through the communication of life from parents to child, God's own image and likeness is transmitted, thanks to the creation of the immortal soul. The beginning of the book of the genealogy of Adam expresses it in this way. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and called them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. It is precisely in their role as co-workers with God, who transmits his image to the new creature, that we see the greatness of couples who are ready to cooperate with the love of the Creator and the Saviour, who through them will enlarge and enrich his own family day by day. This is why the bishop Amphilochius extolled holy matrimony, chosen and elevated above all other earthly gifts, is the begetter of humanity, the creator of images of God. Thus, a man and woman joined in matrimony become partners in a divine undertaking. Through the act of procreation, God's gift is accepted and a new life opens to the future. But over and above the specific mission of parents, the task of accepting and serving life involves everyone. And this task must be fulfilled above all, towards life when it is at its weakest. It is Christ himself who reminds us of this when he asks to be loved and served in his brothers and sisters who are suffering in any way, the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Whatever is done to each of them is done to Christ himself. Human life finds itself most vulnerable when it enters the world and when it leaves the realm of time to embark upon eternity. The Word of God frequently repeats the call to show care and respect, above all where life is undermined by sickness and old age. Although there are no direct and explicit calls to protect human life at its very beginning, specifically life not yet born, and life nearing its end, this can easily be explained by the fact that the mere possibility of harming, attacking or actually denying life in these circumstances 
is completely foreign to the religious and cultural way of thinking of the people of God. In the Old Testament, sterility is dreaded as a curse, while numerous offspring are viewed as a blessing. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. This belief is also based on Israel's awareness of being the people of the covenant, called to increase in accordance with the promise made to Abraham. Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your descendants be. But more than anything else, at work here is the certainty that the life which parents transmit has its origins in God. We see this attested in the many biblical passages which respectfully and lovingly speak of conception, of the forming of life in the mother's womb, of giving birth, and of the intimate connection between the initial moment of life and the action of God the Creator. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. The life of every individual, from its very beginning, is part of God's plan. Job, from the depth of his pain, stops to contemplate the work of God, who miraculously formed his body in his mother's womb. Here he finds reason for trust, and he expresses his belief that there is a divine plan for his life. You have fashioned and made me. Will you then turn and destroy me? Remember that you have made me of clay, and will you turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Expressions of awe and wonder at God's intervention in the life of a child in its mother's womb occur again and again in the Psalms. How can anyone think that even a single moment of this marvellous process of the unfolding of life could be separated from the wise and loving work of the Creator and left prey to human caprice? Certainly, the mother of the seven brothers did not think so. She professes her faith in God, both the source and the guarantee of life, from its very conception, and the foundation of the hope of new life beyond death. I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore the Creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things, will, in his mercy, give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. The New Testament revelation confirms the indisputable recognition of the value of life from its very beginning. The exaltation of fruitfulness and the eager expectation of life resound in the words with which Elizabeth rejoices in her pregnancy. The Lord has looked on me to take away my reproach among men. And even more so, the value of the person from the moment of conception is celebrated in the meeting between the Virgin Mary and Elizabeth, and between the two children whom they are carrying in the womb.
It is precisely the children who reveal the advent of the messianic age. In their meeting, the redemptive power of the presence of the Son of God among men first becomes operative. As St. Ambrose writes, the arrival of Mary and the blessings of the Lord's presence are also speedily declared. Elizabeth was the first to hear the voice, but John was the first to experience grace. She heard according to the order of nature. He leaped because of the mystery. She recognized the arrival of Mary. He, the arrival of the Lord. The woman recognized the woman's arrival, the child, that of the child. The women speak of grace. The babies make it effective from within, to the advantage of their mothers who, by a double miracle, prophesy under the inspiration of their children. The infant leaped. The mother was filled with the Spirit. The mother was not filled before the Son, but after the Son was filled with the Holy Spirit, he filled his mother too. With regard to the last moments of life too, it would be anachronistic to expect biblical revelation to make express reference to present-day issues concerning respect for elderly and sick persons, or to condemn explicitly attempts to hasten their end by force. The cultural and religious context of the Bible is in no way touched by such temptations. Indeed, in that context the wisdom and experience of the elderly are recognized as a unique source of enrichment for the family and for society. Old age is characterized by dignity and surrounded with reverence. The just man does not seek to be delivered from old age and its burden. On the contrary, his prayer is this, You, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. So even to old age and grey hairs, O God, do not forsake me till I proclaim your might to all the generations to come. The ideal of the messianic age is presented as a time when no more shall there be an old man who does not fill out his days. In old age, how should one face the inevitable decline of life? How should one act in the face of death? The believer knows that his life is in the hands of God. You, O Lord, hold my lot. And he accepts from God the need to die. This is the decree from the Lord for all flesh, and how can you reject the good pleasure of the Most High? Man is not the master of life, nor is he the master of death. In life and in death, he has to entrust himself completely to the good pleasure of the Most High to his loving plan. In moments of sickness, too, man is called to have the same trust in the Lord and to renew his fundamental faith in the one who heals all your diseases. When every hope of good health seems to fade before a person's eyes, so as to make him cry out, My days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. Even then the believer is sustained by an unshakable faith in God's life-giving power. Illness does not drive such a person to despair and to seek death, but makes him cry out in hope. I kept my faith, even when I said, I am greatly afflicted.
O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. The mission of Jesus, with the many healings he performed, shows God's great concern even for man's bodily life. Jesus, as the physician of the body and of the spirit, was sent by the Father to proclaim the good news to the poor and to heal the broken-hearted. Later, when he sends his disciples into the world, he gives them a mission, a mission in which healing the sick goes hand in hand with the proclamation of the gospel. And preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Certainly the life of the body in its earthly state is not an absolute good for the believer, especially as he may be asked to give up his life for a greater good. As Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The New Testament gives many different examples of this. Jesus does not hesitate to sacrifice himself, and he freely makes of his life an offering to the Father and to those who belong to him. The death of John the Baptist, precursor of the Saviour, also testifies that earthly existence is not an absolute good. What is more important is remaining faithful to the word of the Lord, even at the risk of one's life. Stephen, losing his earthly life because of his faithful witness to the Lord's resurrection, follows in the Master's footsteps and meets those who are stoning him with words of forgiveness, thus becoming the first of a countless host of martyrs whom the Church has venerated since the very beginning. No one, however, can arbitrarily choose whether to live or die. The absolute master of such decision is the Creator alone, in whom we live and move and have our being. Life is indelibly marked by a truth of its own. By accepting God's gift, man is obliged to maintain life in this truth, which is essential to it. To detach oneself from this truth is to condemn oneself to meaninglessness and unhappiness, and possibly to become a threat to the existence of others, since the barriers guaranteeing respect for life and the defence of life in every circumstance have been broken down. The truth of life is revealed by God's commandment. The word of the Lord shows concretely the course which life must follow if it is to respect its own truth and to preserve its own dignity. The protection of life is not only ensured by the specific commandment, you shall not kill. The entire law of the Lord serves to protect life, because it reveals that truth in which life finds its full meaning. It is not surprising, therefore, that God's covenant with his people is so closely linked to the perspective of life also in its bodily dimension. In that covenant, God's commandment is offered as the path of life. I have set before you this day life and good, 
death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of. What is at stake is not only the land of Canaan and the existence of the people of Israel, but also the world of today and of the future, and the existence of all humanity. In fact, it is altogether impossible for life to remain authentic and complete once it is detached from the good. And the good, in its turn, is essentially bound to the commandments of the Lord, that is, to the law of life. The good to be done is not added to life as a burden which weighs on it, since the very purpose of life is that good, and only by doing it can life be built up. It is thus the law as a whole which fully protects human life. This explains why it is so hard to remain faithful to the commandment, You shall not kill, when the other words of life with which this commandment is bound up are not observed. Detached from this wider framework, the commandment is destined to become nothing more than an obligation imposed from without, and very soon we begin to look for its limits and try to find mitigating factors and exceptions. Only when people are open to the fullness of the truth about God, man and history will the words, You shall not kill, shine forth once more as a good for man in himself and in his relations with others. In such a perspective, we can grasp the full truth of the passage of the book of Deuteronomy, which Jesus repeats in reply to the first temptation. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. It is by listening to the word of the Lord that we are able to live in dignity and justice. It is by observing the law of God that we are able to bring forth fruits of life and happiness. All who hold her fast will live, and those who forsake her will die. The history of Israel shows how difficult it is to remain faithful to the law of life which God has inscribed in human hearts and which he gave on Sinai to the people of the covenant. When the people look for ways of living which ignore God's plan, it is the prophets in particular who forcefully remind them that the Lord alone is the authentic source of life. Thus Jeremiah writes, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The prophets point an accusing finger at those who show contempt for life and violate people's rights. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Among them, the prophet Ezekiel frequently condemns the city of Jerusalem, calling it the bloody city, the city that sheds blood in her own midst. But while the prophets condemn offences against life, they are concerned above all to awaken hope for a new principle of life, 
capable of bringing about a renewed relationship with God and with others, and of opening up new and extraordinary possibilities for understanding and carrying out all the demands inherent in the gospel of life. This will only be possible thanks to the gift of God who purifies and renews. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. This new heart will make it possible to appreciate and achieve the deepest and most authentic meaning of life, namely that of being a gift which is fully realized in the giving of self. This is the splendid message about the value of life, which comes to us from the figure of the servant of the Lord. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his life, he shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. It is in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth that the law is fulfilled and that a new heart is given through his Spirit. Jesus does not deny the law, but brings it to fulfilment. The law and the prophets are summed up in the golden rule of mutual love. In Jesus, the law becomes once and for all the gospel, the good news of God's lordship over the world, which brings all life back to its roots and its original purpose. This is the new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and its fundamental expression, following the example of the Lord who gave his life for his friends, is the gift of self and love for one's brothers and sisters. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. This is the law of freedom, joy and blessedness. At the end of this chapter, in which we have reflected on the Christian message about life, I would like to pause with each one of you to contemplate the one who was pierced and who draws all people to himself. Looking at the spectacle of the cross, we shall discover in this glorious tree the fulfilment and the complete revelation of the whole gospel of life. In the early afternoon of Good Friday, there was darkness over the whole land, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is the symbol of a great cosmic disturbance and a massive conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between life and death. Today we too find ourselves in the midst of a dramatic conflict between the culture of death and the culture of life. But the glory of the cross is not overcome by this darkness. Rather, it shines forth ever more radiantly and brightly and is revealed as the centre, meaning and goal of all history and of every human life. Jesus is nailed to the cross and is lifted up from the earth. He experiences the moment of his greatest powerlessness, and his life seems completely delivered to the derision of his adversaries 
and into the hands of his executioners. He is mocked, jeered at, insulted. And yet, precisely amid all this, having seen him breathe his last, the Roman centurion exclaims, Truly, this man was the Son of God. It is thus, at the moment of his greatest weakness, that the Son of God is revealed for who he is. On the cross, his glory is made manifest. By his death, Jesus sheds light on the meaning of the life and death of every human being. Before he dies, Jesus prays to the Father, asking forgiveness for his persecutors. And to the criminal who asks him to remember him in his kingdom, he replies, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. After his death, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The salvation wrought by Jesus is the bestowal of life and resurrection. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus had indeed bestowed salvation by healing and doing good to all. But his miracles, healings, and even his raising of the dead were signs of another salvation, a salvation which consists in the forgiveness of sins, that is, in setting man free from his greatest sickness and in raising him to the very life of God. On the cross, the miracle of the serpent lifted up by Moses in the desert is renewed and brought to full and definitive perfection. Today, too, by looking upon the one who was pierced, every person whose life is threatened encounters the sure hope of finding freedom and redemption. But there is yet another particular event which moves me deeply when I consider it. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Afterwards, the Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Everything has now reached its complete fulfilment. The giving up of the spirit describes Jesus' death a death like that of every other human being. But it also seems to allude to the gift of the Spirit, by which Jesus ransoms us from death and opens before us a new life. It is the very life of God which is now shared with man. It is the life which through the sacraments of the Church, symbolized by the blood and water flowing from Christ's side, is continually given to God's children making them the people of the new covenant. From the cross, the source of life, the people of life is born and increases. The contemplation of the cross thus brings us to the very heart of all that has taken place. Jesus, who upon entering into the world said, I have come, O God, to do your will made himself obedient to the Father in everything. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
giving himself completely for them. He who had come not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, attains on the cross the heights of love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he died for us while we were yet sinners. In this way, Jesus proclaims that life finds its center, its meaning, and its fulfillment when it is given up. At this point, our meditation becomes praise and thanksgiving, and at the same time urges us to imitate Christ and follow in his footsteps. We too are called to give our lives for our brothers and sisters, and thus to realize in the fullness of truth the meaning and destiny of our existence. We shall be able to do this because you, O Lord, have given us the example and have bestowed on us the power of your Spirit. We shall be able to do this if every day, with you and like you, we are obedient to the Father and do his will. Grant, therefore, that we may listen with open and generous hearts to every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Thus we shall learn not only to obey the commandment not to kill human life, but also to revere life, to love it, and to foster it. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely in order to build, together with all people of goodwill, the civilization of truth and love, to the praise and glory of God, the creator and lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.